the one I want. My secretary, thank you. Sherry, we'll call her Sherry. Um, I'm going to give you the little backstory here. We're in the gospel. You know, the gospel means good news. There are four gospels. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called synoptic because they sort of go together. Um, John's is written much later and contains a lot of information the others don't have. Um, this is early in Jesus's ministry. He may not have all of his disciples yet picked um, his apostles, I should say. Um, in chapter three, we met Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, the ultimate insider. He's a religious expert in Israel. Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. And yet when he meets Jesus, he misunderstands a lot of things and leaves more confused than when he got there. We do believe that he became a believer later because he's one of the ones that anoints the body uh, of Christ. So now we are in chapter four with this ultimate outsider, the woman at the well. Women were second-class citizens in that culture, so she's an outsider for that reason. She's an outsider because she's a Samaritan, and Samaritans were considered half-breeds by the Jews. They had some Jewish religion, the first five books of Moses, but they also had a great deal of pagan uh, religion thrown in. They're, they had a temple there that was donated, dedicated to Zeus, of all people, and yet they think they're worshiping the true God. So um, this woman has been cast off by five different men, we found out. <clears throat> Let's dive in and, um, and read the text. But if you're planning a revival, this would be one of the last people you would pick, it would seem. And yet Jesus, who's way smarter than you or me, picks her specifically, um, and we'll show you why. Um, she's an outcast because she is known as kind of a loose woman kind of thing. It turns out she's thirsty for more than just water. She's thirsty for approval from men. That's what she's using to try to fill the void in her heart. We said the last two weeks that Blaise Pascal, the famous a Christian mathematician and philosopher coined the term that there's a God-shaped vacuum in every human soul. We all know we're missing something, and apart from Jesus Christ, you will stuff things in there and it won't work, whether it is money or fame or power or sex or drugs or rock and roll or um, alcohol, whatever it is, nothing will fill that void in a person. Um, let's see, let's, let's, uh, we're also going to, we're going to talk about praise and worship a lot tonight and the difference between the two also evangelism, true food and true faith. So without any further ado, pick it up in John chapter four, we really left off right around verse 23, but we're going to, I want you to get the context of where we are. Cause some of you weren't here last week. Those of you that are here say, amen. So I know you're awake. Amen. Good one. And, uh, those of you on zoom wave or say, amen. You're not on Zoom. Anyway, John chapter four, pick it up in verse four. And I'm going to briefly comment on each verse just to give you the flavor of where we are. Now, he had to go through Samaria. The truth is there was two other ways to go where he's headed. He didn't have to go to Samaria. Most uh, Jews, religious Jews, would avoid Samaria because the Samaritans were unclean. They were pagans, half-breeds, Jews who had intermarried with pagans. He purposely goes through Samaria I believe, and many scholars believe, for the distinct purpose of meeting this one seemingly insignificant woman. 
So he came to a town in Samaria, verse five, called Sychar. That was the capital, <clears throat> excuse me, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. This is what we call a divine appointment. He knows it. The woman has no idea. Verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? That's verse 7. Stop right there. Normally, women would go to the well in groups, <clears throat> safety-wise, socialization, and they would almost always go early, early in the day before it got real hot or late in the day just before sunset. They would carry water pots. The same word for water pot is used here that was used in chapter two at the wedding in Cana when Jesus changes water into wine. If you're picturing a little water pot, you're way off. It's probably anywhere from five to 30 gallons. It is a huge, heavy thing, <clears throat> much heavier, full of water, obviously. Hard work to go there and go back. Why is she coming at the hottest part of the day? so she can be alone because the women have shunned her because she's kind of a, an adulteress. We'll learn in a second why. Um, and kind of the whole town has disowned her. Um, so Jesus initiates the conversation. Will you give me a drink? His humanity, he's thirsty, tired. Verse eight, parenthetically, John adds, his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. That's amazing because Jews weren't supposed to have dealings with Samaritans. Jesus in this passage is breaking down several barriers at once. The racial barrier and the racism of Jews against Samaritans, Jesus cares nothing about that stuff. I can imagine that his disciples said, we shouldn't go into town there. It's Samaritans. And he said, go, all of you. Notice he made them all go when it could have just been one or two, get the sandwiches and come back, right? Drive through McDonald's or whatever. Um, verse nine. So he says, will you give me a drink? Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Not only that, but normally a man would not speak to a woman in public. This is unusual for a number of reasons. Um, Jesus answered her, verse 10. So he's, she's asked, How can, I'm, a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, you're a Jew. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So he, he's saying to her, there's two issues here water, but my water's better because it's living water, whatever that is, right? We don't know yet. The other thing, did you notice the other issue he makes a big deal? If you knew the gift of God, the gospel, or he, he himself, some people think, and who it is that asks you for a drink. That's the central question John is answering in this gospel. Who is Jesus? Great teacher, prophet, guru, just a holy man, con man, Lord, Savior, God in human flesh, who is Jesus? He makes it a big deal here himself. The gift of God, some say it's the gospel, some say Jesus, who it is that asks you, that it's God himself asking you for a drink. You would have asked me, he's saying, talking about himself in the third person, and he, meaning himself, would have given you living water. 
Okay, she takes him literally water. Watch. He means spiritual water. Remember, the Gospel of John has a ton of words that have double meanings. Sir, verse 11, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a water pot. You don't have a bucket. And the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? There's a little hint of sarcasm there. You got no equipment. She's thinking physically on our plane of length, width, and depth, right? Three dimensions. Where are you going to get water without a bucket? To draw this, quote, living water. Verse 12. Now a little more sarcasm. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? They claim Jacob as a common ancestor, if you will. But they came through, before they became paganized, Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, not Judah, which Jesus came through, different tribe. Are you greater than our father Jacob? The implied answer would be, you got to be kidding me. Mr. Homeless guy sitting on, the, on a well, thirsty and dirty from the trip. Are you greater than Jacob, sir? Jesus answered. Uh, no, let's see. Yeah, verse 13, Jacob, uh, Jesus answered. Everyone who drinks this water, pointing to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Boy, if this is a salesman, he's laying it on thick, right? Living water, the gift of God, who I am, some kind of water that makes you lose thirst forever. You'll never be thirsty again. And the water will become in you a spring of water, which is a source, right? Um, welling up to, here it comes, eternal life, right? That's some water, amen? Verse uh, 15, the woman said to him, we're just reviewing right now. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still thinking physical water right? Some kind of special water, you drink it once, you're never, ever thirsty again. We all know that doesn't exist, right? Physically speaking. But she's ready, right? Her heart's being softened. And she's probably very lonely. The only man she talks to is the guy she lives with, probably kind of an outcast. So she says, give me this water that I, so I won't get thirsty. I have to keep coming here to draw water. She's ready. Or is she? Has the sin problem been dealt with before she can have eternal life and be born again? Chapter three. So she says, give me the water. He says, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. So that would be the way society was. For me to continue this conversation, really, your husband ought to be here, ma'am. But that's not what he means. He's like a doctor gently touching the sore spot. Okay. We have to deal with your sin. Where's your husband? Verse 17. I have no husband. She replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, verse 18, you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband living with a guy, right? What you've just said is quite true. Now. 
Does he have the right as being God in a man's body to judge her right now? Absolutely. Is she guilty? Absolutely. Does he? No. He's so gentle with this woman. Everywhere Christianity has gone in the world, the status of women in that society has risen greatly. The first person to see Jesus risen from the dead is a woman, Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out demons, not exactly a religious you know, expert or insider. This woman is the ultimate outsider. So she admits, I've had five husbands in those days. We said last week, a woman did not divorce a man. The man divorced the woman. So five times a man has said, get out. I'm done with you. Divorce. This time she's kind of given up, just living with a man, which even they would have understood was not, you know, it was sin. It was adultery or at least fornication. So he tells her that there's no way he could have known it. And she being perceptive in verse 19 says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet, right? Supernatural knowledge from God has come to you. So she's come from, who are you? Some strange dude asking for water. Are you greater than Jacob? All of a sudden she gets it. He's a prophet. Keep in mind to call somebody a prophet means from now on, if you believe he's a prophet, you better believe what he says. He's a prophet. Watch. Sir, I can see, uh, I think King James has, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. I love that. Verse 20. Now she's going to take a left turn. Uncomfortable talking about my sin. I can see you're a prophet. Um, Tim Keller, and I think it's Tim Keller, in his sermon on this passage says, well, um, since we're talking about my adultery, um, let's talk about worship instead. Verse 20, our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, Gerizim. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. So which mountain is it? Where should true worship now she's changed the subject. We've gone from water to living water to who it is that she's talking to her, the gift of God, her adultery, her sin, right? A lot of subjects. Their mountain, Gerizim, they had a temple there. I misspoke last week when I said that the Romans destroyed it. It was already destroyed at this time, it was destroyed in 125 BC. And all that was there was remnants like ruins. And they were still worshiping by the ruins of Gerizim, the temple they had there dedicated to Zeus. Don't get me started on why. So um, she wants to change the subject. And, and with regard to worship, meaning worship of God, to where? The place. This mountain, you Jews say Jerusalem at the temple. Um, let's see. Verse 21. Woman. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Neither one. Place isn't going to matter. The reason is because believers, once Jesus dies on the cross, are given the Holy Spirit, and you can worship anywhere, right? 
not to say you shouldn't worship with a church body. Um, Hebrews 10 talks about that. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, which is the habit of some. We are to worship together, but that doesn't preclude you going in your bedroom or a 7-Eleven store or in a mountain or at the ocean or in a department store. You can worship God anywhere. Pretty astounding. Um, so he's saying a, a time is coming when you'll worship the father. Notice father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. They only believe the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch. They did not believe all the prophets were inspired writings, North Psalms, Proverbs, all of that. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. We said last week the Jews were the ones that were given the scriptures through, the, through prophets. The Messiah was said to be a Jew coming from the tribe of Judah, um, etc. Salvation comes from the Jews. But that's not to exclude everyone else. Remember, he's not a racist. He doesn't care. She's a Samaritan. Yet, verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. This is where we left off last week. What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? The first thing I'll say is it's instructive to look at those terms and take the opposite. The opposite of worshiping in spirit and in truth is someone that's worshiping in the flesh and in error. Error would have to do with doctrine. They've, they're worshiping in error. They've got Zeus's name written on the, on the a pagan god who doesn't even exist. They're worshiping in error. They only have the first five books of Moses. They don't have Isaiah, all those other books. They're worshiping in error, truth and in spirit and in truth. What does it mean to worship in spirit? Okay, the answer to that is he means it in two ways. Um, one way and then a much deeper way. The one way is that we don't worship in the flesh. We worship via our spirit. Okay, let me look at my notes to remember where we are here. Um, the equipment that's needed, a, a normal human being does not have. What do you mean by that? I mean that when you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you, which makes your body a temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, your body is the, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. He lives in his temple in your body. So until you have the Holy Spirit, there really, you cannot worship him and you don't know the Lord as well. Truth, the er, lack of error, in other words. Um, okay, a couple definitions of worship. I, I think it's helpful. A feeling or expression of reverence and adoration, adoring towards a deity, especially by praying with others in a group. To honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. We'll talk about that as well. Um, worship, the word comes from English, worth-ship. Somebody is so worthy or worth so much to you that you are going to worship them. The Greek word, as we said last week, is proskuneo, which means to bow down. It literally means face in the dirt. Literally, the word actually means to kiss toward, like kissing a superior's hand. It involves humility to lay on the ground like that. It involves submission 
and it would obviously involve obedience. Notice that Jesus added the term worship the who? Didn't say, say creator. That's something much more distant. He said worship the father, which implies what? Family, love, right? Father is above his daughter or son, right? It implies obedience. You don't talk back to your father, at least my family, you didn't, or you wouldn't have two eyes and a nose and a mouth, probably. Um, let's see. Yeah, uh, humility inward and toward God, total reverence. Bowing down is worship. Remember that God is spirit. He's eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's the, your creator. So we are surrendering our lives to him when we worship. Most people, when they hear the word worship, think, oh, yeah, we do that on Sunday before the sermon. I'm going to try to sell you on the idea that's a very small part, although important, of what actual worship is. Not that you shouldn't do that, but you should. Uh, but there's much, much, much more to it. Um, true worship is the acknowledgement of who God is and his absolute value to you, listen, as having priority over all other things that are valuable to you, your children, your home, your own body, your own life. You worship him more than all the other things. True worship is all about God and not about us. I, there's someone in this Bible said, I'm not going to point her out, but she was telling me that she likes to sing the worship songs at church with her eyes closed when she can, when she knows the words, because there's just less distractions, the people playing the music, the pastor, the everything around her. She just wants to commune with God, right? I think she's on the right track. Keep your finger here and go to Romans, two books to the right, chapter 12. We're going to take it to another level here. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. So two books to the right from John, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, meaning obedient, and pleasing to God, obedient. This is your what? spiritual act of worship, meaning what? That it's not a, I'm going to worship from 1030 to 11. It's a lifestyle, right? Do all to the glory, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, Paul writes. It's an ongoing lifestyle in which we are constantly recognizing God, acknowledging God, and bowing to him and his will. But you can't do that until you know the word enough to know, well, what does he want? I don't care what he wants. I'm just going to go look at the trees in the forest and I'll commune with him that way. A friend of mine said this to me last week. That's my church, the forest. This person doesn't go to church, read the Bible, anything. And I said, do you know who Michelangelo is? You know, the painter, you know, or Leonardo da Vinci, the painter? Yes. Do you think you can look at a painting of his and know all about him? Well, no, you could learn a few things, but not really two-dimensional, right? To know about the person, you would have to get to really know them. And he's written 66 books bound together as the Bible. Amen. So a um, couple of scriptures. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. 
beautiful. Psalm 96. Come, let us worship and bow down, Psalm 95. So it's often bowing or kneeling shows humility, shows contrition, sorrow for our own sin. Um, worship can be public or private. It's felt inwardly, but it is expressed through our actions. And I don't mean in church, necessarily raising hands, whatever you want to do is fine. I mean, in our actions, someone that's worshiping hypocritically is somebody that praises the Lord and sings and worships him and then goes and continues the same sins they were doing before, right? Hypocritical worship. Jesus cleanses the temple in chapter two of this book. Do you remember? For that very reason, they're worshiping hypocritically. Um, what's the motivation for worship? We're still in Romans 12. The mercies of God, all the things he's given us, all the punishment we deserve that he's withheld, we're so much in his debt. We see him as so much greater than we are. I said last week, I hate the term, the man upstairs for God. He's not the man upstairs. That implies he's just like me, a man, he's just up there, right? Transcendently more than we can ever imagine. Um, how do we do it? A living, holy sacrifice, giving control of our lives to God. When he says, I want A, you don't do B. Even if you want B, we do A, we obey. Holy meaning obedient. Yeah. But verse two, Romans 12 is a big part of the picture. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The pattern of this world is the world worships certain things, right? The world looks up to power and money and fame and good looks and achievement, you could say, right? All those things have to take a much lower position. We've said in this Bible study that prayer, the four elements that are in every biblical prayer are the acronym ACTS. Do you remember A-C-T-S? Anybody remember? Somebody nod, so I know someone was listening. Okay. Adoration, that's worship and praise. We'll talk about the difference in a second. A-ACTS, A-C-T-S, adoration. Your prayer ought to be, start with adoration. Hallowed be thy name. That's adoration. Praise for God. C, confession, confessing that you're, you know you're far from perfect, you are sorry for your sin, you confess your sin. T, thanksgiving, that's more akin to praise. We'll talk about that in a second. Thanking God for um, a thousand things, right, in your life. S, supplication, that's the asking for stuff that most people, that their prayer is mostly that. Please bless so-and-so and him too. And by the way, me, I need a job and I need this and that. It's fine to do that, but the other three elements are equally, if not more, important. So you have to first be born again because you got to have the Holy Spirit to worship him in spirit. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that unbelievers, including us, that's what 2, 1 says, we as unbelievers were, anybody remember, not sick spiritually, dead spiritually. Therefore, the dead spiritually person cannot spiritually worship in spirit and in truth. You got to have the Holy Spirit. You have to be a believer in order to worship him. And once you're a believer, you have all the reasons to worship him. Um, what's the difference between worship and praise? Sometimes when we do music, it's time for praise and worship. And it's like sort of one thing. They're certainly close cousins, if not brother and sister. But um, 
uh, I heard a sermon once where they said, worship is much more down, praise is much more up. You say, what do you mean by down? I don't mean down like down in the dumb sad. I mean, worship is bowing down. It's much more submissive and quiet and reverent. Praise is boisterous, loud. It can be with, in the Bible, with shouting, with singing, with dancing, right? Clapping of the hands, praising God, thanking him, right? Both are elements of um, how we interact with, I should say, God. Okay, pitfalls of worship. Worship of any other God, that's kind of obvious, right? That was the problem in Samaria, they're worshiping other gods. Um, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, remember all that. Worshiping God in a false form. The Israelites worshiped the golden calf, do you remember that? Do you know that they weren't, they, if you ask them, oh, you're not worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, they would say, it's in the Bible, this is our God who brought us out of Egypt. Meaning, no, we're worshiping you, we just need a visual representation. So we got all our gold together, earrings, rings, whatever, and we melted it together, and we made this golden calf, and we're bowing down to it, but we really mean that it's you. That, that is a stench in God's nostrils. Don't make any image don't worship any other false form of God. Worship in a self-styled way, Burger King way. I want it my way. Well, you may worship that way, but, and, and the Bible says, I have my own way of worshiping. Eh, wrong. There's two guys in the Bible, Nadab and Abihu, who the Bible says they go to worship God and they listen to this phrase. You may have heard it. John MacArthur has a book by this title. They offered God, ready? strange fire. Somehow their worship was pagan in its origin, but we are worshiping you, but we're doing it in our own way. And God, by the way, they were both put to death. Um, worship with the hypocritical heart. I'm all about worshiping God, but I'm not willing to repent of this. I'm stealing at work and I'm lusting after so-and-so and whatever it is that you're doing, that's a sin. We come to God with honesty. He sees right through us anyway, right? Um, Isaiah, uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah, you hypocrites, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. The problem with worship for you and I is we can go through the motions because we do it every week and kind of forget what we're supposed to be thinking about, not just reading the words on the screen as the songs go by. And you're thinking about, I got to mow the lawn tomorrow and then grocery shop with my wife. And then before you know it, you go, I don't even know what I read was singing, but I sang it. It's all about communing with God in your spirit. Um, hypocritical heart. Yeah, we covered that. And we covered acts. We're moving right along. Um, Father implies that we're beneath him, and we are. Worship, listen, is the interaction of the human spirit with the divine spirit. And it's not something you can do when you're not a Christian. He is, we submit to him because he's, we got our life from him. We actually, I could show you if I had time, anyone here, whatever things you have that are blessings, you got them one way or another from God, every single one of them. Yes, but I worked and I earned the money myself. And that's how I bought that car who gave you the health and the abilities and the talents to work and the job and the opportunity. And we could go on and on. It's all from God. We worship God because of who he is. And when we worship, we are contemplating constantly creator, 
sustainer of the universe. He's everywhere present, all powerful, and he loves us. By the way, Jesus comes to this woman. He's God in a man's body. She is a total dirty sinner, right? Guilty as can be. And he knows her better than anybody. Listen, and he loves her anyway. That's If that doesn't change your heart and make you want to bow to that kind of a God, nothing will. We do it to honor him. It's, we're commanded to worship him. I used to have a problem with this. Does God have a big ego? He has to keep, keep being told how great he is. And is worship for you? You need this? Pat on the back, God, constantly. You're so great. Listen, it's for you and me. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it says that God has placed in the heart of human beings eternity. That we know there's something more to long for. We were made to worship. In fact, when we're worshiping God, we're doing the most important thing we can be doing on this planet. Not that parenting isn't important or work or spreading the word of the gospel, giving to others, all important. But when we're worshiping, it doesn't get any higher on the plane of spirituality than worshiping the true God in spirit and in truth. As we do, we draw near to him. Listen to this verse, Psalm 22. The Bible says, God, listen, sits enthroned upon the praises of Israel. That in some way, he's even more present when we are as a body corporately worshiping him, bowing down to him. Um, it is, yeah, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. First uh, Corinthians 6. We were made to worship God. There's a built-in craving to worship. By the way, worship continues in heaven. Revelation 7 talks about. In any case, we're going to move on. You say, well, we beat that dead horse. Yes, I tried. Let's go back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. All right. Well, that was a good one. So we have to worship in spirit and in truth. The subject was worship and where to worship. We got rid of all that. The place doesn't matter is what he told her. Jerusalem, Gerizim, Mecca, St. Louis, Coarse Gold. It doesn't matter, right? But now watch how the conversation goes. The woman said, verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. It's so ironic that she's saying that, right? Because he's it. And he's about to say so. The, the Jews had a little different view of the Messiah, probably less biblical than the Samaritans. The Samaritans see the Messiah as the ultimate teacher who will explain everything. And he is that. The Jews had the idea of a political uh, military Messiah who will free them from the Romans and take over the world. Does he do that? Yes. Second coming. First coming, he comes humbly dies for the sins of the world. I know that Messiah is coming. It's a future thing. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. She already called him a prophet. Don't forget. Verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am. Divine name of God, Exodus 3. So he, this is, if you read all four gospels, there's only two places he does this. It's so weird. It's a woman, a sinful woman, a Samaritan woman that he admits this to. He hasn't said this to the apostles, right? The only other time he does it is when he's in court arrested 
before the Sanhedrin. Do you remember that? The, the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Remember? And he says, I am. And you'll see the son of man coming in the clouds. Remember all that? This is the only two times he says it. And he says it to a woman. Watch this. The divine timing. Then, just then, verse 27, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? They don't speak to her or him. They just figure, let's let this alone. But don't miss the timing. To the millisecond, God has ar arranged for Jesus to meet this woman and have a private talk with her. All the disciples are gone. They went and got food, drove through McDonald's. Now they're on the way back. Right when they arrive is when he says, the she says Messiah, and he says, that's me, right? Astounding. Disciples get home, get back, and can't believe he's talking to a woman. Um, but they don't ask anything. But the woman's already been changed. What do you mean, Joe? Are you saying she's saved? Almost every scholar I could read said yes. Does she have a full-orbed theology and doctrine of all of Christianity? No, no. But does she believe he's a prophet? Yes. The Messiah? Yes. Remember the logic. If he's a prophet, what he says goes. If he says he's the Messiah, he is, right? Watch what happens, because you can say you're saved, but the proof is in the fruits, what you and I do with our lives. Watch. So they return, the disciples, verse 28. Then, leaving her water jar or water pot, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Okay, a couple things here. A lot has been made of the fact that she leaves something behind. And I think they're right. It's possible she was in such a hurry to go tell other people about Christ, and evidence that she saved, by the way, right? That she just forgot about the water pot. John MacArthur believes she left the water pot for Jesus to use. You were thirsty, dude. Go for it. I'll leave my water pot. I'm of the opinion that the water pot was very important to her because she was very thirsty until she met Jesus. And then I think she forgot it. You ever been so excited with something going on and you forget, I forgot my phone. I forgot where I parked my car. Pretty easy out here, right? Um, she leaves her water pot immediately and goes back to town. It's a little awkward because now all these guys are here, his, his apostles, and she's a little uptight. And what's going to happen now? She leaves immediately. She leaves something behind. You and I leave behind something when we come to Christ, hopefully our old habits, sometimes old friends that we can't hang out with like we used to, right? Some scholars think, I'm just going to throw it out there. Remember chapter two, changing of water into wine. There were, I think it's six, right? Large water jugs that were used. If you read the story in chapter two, they're not for drinking water. They're for ceremonial use, for washing for the Jews. You with me so far? That's part of Judaism, the, all the ceremonies and the rituals and the washings and the kosher food and the, um, the pomp and circumstance of religion. Some, 
The word is the same, water pot. Some say it's symbolic of the fact, because he just mentioned that a couple chapters ago, that we're leaving behind in Judaism all of that. No need for those washings anymore. She's got the living water. I'm going to say what I was about to say. Um, so she goes back to town and said to the people, that's amazing. What do you mean? She's an outcast, right? She doesn't care if they ridicule her. They know she's a sinner. She doesn't care because that's the old me. What's not here, but it's implied is this woman has, is going to change her whole life. She's going to move out with that guy, right? And get an apartment over the grocery store uh, or something. So she can't wait to tell people, listen, if you became saved this evening and didn't tell anybody for a few weeks, I would wonder how excited are you? Do you understand what just happened? You were dead. You now have eternal life, present tense. You now have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of you. You are the temple, young lady or young man, in this case, a woman. Um, she leaves her jar and she can't wait to, and actually the word in verse 29 is she said to the men, uh, is how the Greek reads. What does she say? This is ingenious. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Okay, she's saying, because he had supernatural knowledge, I believe, okay? Her heart was definitely changed by him. Come see. Jesus says, remember, um, two disciples come up to him in chapter one, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. Andrew comes and tells his brother, Peter, Peter we found the Messiah. What? Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Remember all that? Come and see. She uses the same words here. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now notice this is ingenious. She does not say, this is a woman. Remember, women had no authority to teach men in that culture. She does not say, this is the Messiah. She says, could this be the Messiah? A question right? Opening it up for discussion. And those days at the town square, there would be um, the gate of the town and the men would gather there to legal disputes, different things, commerce would take place. That's where she went to talk to the men and say, I'm so excited. You've got to come see this guy. Could it be the Messiah? There was great messianic expectation of the Messiah coming both there and in Israel. She's piqued their interest now. But meanwhile, there's a whole nother story. Watch. Um, let's see. Verse 30, they came out of the town and made their way toward him. So can you see them? They're, they're coming. They're still a ways off, but they're coming. Now we're going to get a separate little meanwhile back at the ranch story of Jesus and the disciples. Meanwhile, verse 31, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. Now, by the way, they may have been saying that out of respect because you, they're not already diving into their burgers and their fries and sandwiches. He's their master. You got to wait for him to eat, right? When we were kids, we'd sit at the table and there was, you just wanted to chow down. You're so hungry. You wait till your father and mother sit down. Everybody that we say, grace, let's eat. And you would eat. They may be waiting for him and they're starving to eat the sandwiches they brought. Uh, Rabbi, come on, eat so we can get started. I don't know, but they want him to eat. They care about him. They know he's hungry. 
But he said to them, verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. That's kind of a cryptic way of saying it, isn't it? It's almost like I had a sandwich hidden in my pocket or Don Collins came by and gave me some food while you guys were gone. Just it's kind of mysterious. I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples, verse 33, said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Right? That's the only way because they know he didn't have anything on him. There's no food at the well. Verse 34. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. What he's saying is, for me, there is something, I'm a human being, food satisfying when I'm hungry. But there's something way more satisfying than food, and that is doing God's will. And we're going to, after we take our two-minute break, we're going to go back to, uh, we're going to go further in John and find out what's God's will and God's mission for him and how it all ties together. Let's take our two-minute break right now. I'm going to turn off my screen, but I'll be right back. Don't go away. All right, we're back in chapter four. Find your seats, those of you that are here in person and those of you on Zoom, welcome back. Um, let's see where we left off. He just said this astounding thing. My food, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Got it. Thank you. <laughs> um, I've got Ken back there to remind me to turn everything on again after the, uh, after the break. Um, let's see. Um, before we get to the, well, no, we should talk about this first. He's saying that it is more satisfying for him to do God's work than to do anything. Now, there's been some discussion as to whether, does he literally mean he can go without eating as long as he's doing God's work? Probably not. Eventually, he would need food, right? Um, but this sort of echoes what he said, uh, I think it's Luke 4, when the devil tempts him in the wilderness. Do you remember that? He tempts him to turn stones into bread and eat. Why don't you do it? You can do it. Jesus never exercises his divine abilities for his own aggrandizement, for his own good. It's always for other people. Um, could he have turned bread into uh, uh, rocks into bread? Absolutely. He never would do that, right? So I would think he gets hungry. I think it is so satisfying for him to do God's will. It's more fulfilling than anything. Back to Blaise Pascal and the vacuum-shaped hole in every human being, that fills it, doing God's work. We were built for worship and built for serving God, doing his will. We'll get to his will in a moment. Uh, I'm still reading notes like crazy here. Um, what did she leave? What did the woman leave behind when she went to town? I forgot to mention. You already said it, Joe, the water part. What else? I suspect her shame, her guilt, right? Beating herself up, her need for the for, uh, approval of men to make herself feel she's gotten the gift that he spoke of, right? Um, let's see. We already talked about that. Another little parenthetic thing. So far in this gospel, have you noticed again and again and again and again, Jesus says something they misunderstand. Chapter two, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. 
Oh, really? It took 46 years to build this building. Misunderstood, right? You must be born again, Nicodemus. Nick, what does Nick say? Nick at night. What does he say? Oh, does a man have to go into his mother's womb a second time? Misunderstood. He's always speaking on a spiritual level. They're always taking it on a worldly level. Living water. You don't even have a bucket. How can you get living water? Do you see what I mean? My food is to do the will of him. Who I have food you don't know about. I'm doing the will of God. That's why I'm not that hungry, boys. Dig in yourselves. Thank God for the food and dig in anyway. Um, yeah, that Deuteronomy verse that he quotes in Luke 4, I believe it's Luke 4, is Deuteronomy 8. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That it's that kind of satisfying food. Um, when we're new Christians, it's milk. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 12. So go back to, uh, go. I was in Romans. There we go. John chapter 12. I want you to see something real quick. And what verse will it be, Joe? Verse 49, John 12, 49. Jesus talking. For I did not speak on my own accord. That's the only place that Honda appears in the Bible, by the way. Accord. Okay, sorry. For I did not speak on my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. That's what he's doing. That's God's will that he would give eternal life. That will be fulfilling for Jesus. That's his mission. What's your point, Joe? He just did that with that woman, right? It doesn't look like it to the men. And he just saw some lady leaving with, without her water pot. She forgot it. And they heard him say, I am the Messiah when she had mentioned it, right? As they were walking up. Um, a pretty amazing thing. God's will is to give uh, eternal life. And he's just done that. And Jesus is about to teach something else now, because a big crowd of Samaritans is about to show up. And they, the disciples, are going to minister to them as well as Jesus. They are, in a sense, going to, listen, harvest. They're not going to sow seeds. They're going to harvest. Seeds have already been planted, if you will. Um, go back to the text. Are you still awake, by the way? Say amen. Okay, and those of you on Zoom, say amen. I'm watching your mouths move. Okay, I saw that. <laughs> amen. I saw that nice big mouth movement there. Okay, um, let's see, where were we? Um, 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Isn't that interesting? What is the last thing Jesus says on the cross? It is finished. I did it. What do you mean? The main work was to die for the sins of the world. Yeah. Yes, healing, teaching, all of that is important. He finished the work. Verse 35. Again, this sounds like a non sequitur, like coming out of left field. What are you talking about? Don't you have a saying, verse 35, it's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. I can imagine there's disciples looking at the farms around there going, what? Are we going to be farming now? Again, what's he talking about? Spiritual harvest. The fields, it's not wheat or corn or barley or peaches or avocados. It's what? People. In that day, the wealthy could afford dyes, D-Y-E-S, for their clothing. 
Okay, purple, the color of royalty, red, blue, yellow, green, whatever wealthy people look, this is a green. The poor people wore white. A whole town of poor Samaritans is coming toward them through the fields. It might've looked just like that. The fields were white for harvest. Harvesting what? Souls. What does Jesus tell Peter when he calls him to be an apostle? I'm going to make you fishers of men. Men, the harvest is men and women, people, human beings. Um, Let's see. So this is a, a, a... Uh, a proverbial or proverb type saying, four months till harvest. What he's talking about is from the earliest time you um, sow seeds, plant seeds, till the harvest, the the shortest time is usually four months. What do you mean by this, Jesus? Number one, if you know anything about planting seeds, only a fool would plant a seed on Thursday and go, well, where's the vegetables? Friday morning, right? Because it takes time right? There's a natural order to the universe that these things don't happen overnight. He's saying, just like I threw out the whole racism thing with the Samaritans, and you can't talk to a woman, here I am talking to a woman, even though she's a sinner, no, I'm not judging her, I'm throwing out the time schedule too. Because sometimes you will pray for him who's an unbeliever, and it might take 10 years, but sometimes you might pray for him who's an unbeliever, and it might shock you how fast it happened. What do you mean? It just happened like that with the woman in Samaria, one conversation. She went and told a bunch of people, it's about to happen en masse for that whole town very quickly. Okay, go back to 35, uh, 36. The four months till harvest, 35. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. This is a command for you and me, by the way, because it's true today as it was then. Look around at the people you know. The fields are ripe for harvest. There's people that have had seeds planted, Go tell them the gospel. You might get surprised at what happens. Even now, verse 36, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. Remember, that was the goal in John 12, eternal life. So that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. What's going on here? Some people have sown seeds. We're going to talk about who in a second. Um, And others are about to harvest. These guys are going to harvest, you know, Andrew, Peter, James, John, they didn't plant any seeds here, but they're going to get the blessing of harvesting. Sometimes you plant seeds and you never see the person again, and he moves to Cincinnati and you never know about it, but the guy became a Christian nine years later. You planted the seed, somebody else harvested, harvested, they spoke with him, etc. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage. In other words, there's a reward for those who reap and those who sow uh, and harvests a crop for eternal life. Now now they know he's not talking about agriculture, right? There's no wheat that gives eternal life. A crop for eternal life so that the sower, the one that initially plants the seed, tells somebody about Jesus, about reading the Bible, what Christ has done for me. Notice that the woman's testimony is personal. He told me everything I did. I had an experience with this guy um, that was supernatural. Come and see, right? It's not just trust me. She, she can't wait to bring her town 
to the Messiah, to Christ. Um, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. There's no jealousy that Dave Mulkey sowed seeds and Don Collins back there's the one that eventually led Bobby over here to Christ. They both are rejoicing. Who cares, right? Paul says, in, and I think in one of the Corinthian books, um, I planted, Apollos watered, right? But God brings the increase. There's, you have to be cautious about sowing seeds and reaping that you don't do this going, I saved that guy. No, you didn't. Who prepared this woman's heart for the last six months, two years, five years? God was making her convicted of her sin, showing her how empty she was, right? Um, I'm dying to go to this one place, but I'm going to wait um, because it'll fit in better later. Um, stay with me here. Um, verse 20, 37. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. He's talking to the apostles. You're about to have a huge reaping experience. People, you're going to be over, we're going to be overflowing with people in about 10 minutes who are ready for the gospel, ready to believe in me. You're all going to help in that. I'm sending you to reap what you haven't worked for because they didn't witness to these people or to her at all, right? Remember, they didn't say a word. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Okay, so the question is, who are the others? Who are the ones that sowed the seed? Well, in this case, we're talking about the Samaritans, so you would have to include the woman, right? She sowed the seeds down there in the town and said, can this be the Messiah? Come and see, right? That's sowing seeds. Someone else may reap now. Who else sowed seeds? Jesus, right? To the Samaritans? No. To one insignificant, sinful, outcast woman. He, welcome, he sowed seeds in her, and from there she sowed seeds. You with me so far? Now, some of the commentaries say, well, if you want to get technical, Jesus, the woman, the prophets, right? They sowed seeds that made people understand about the Messiah that was coming. That's how she knows there's a Messiah, um, God himself, but primarily it's the woman sowing seeds along with Christ who sowed seeds in her. Um, okay, chapter four, we're in verse 38. Yeah, 39. Uh, others have done the hard work. You've reaped the benefits of their labor. The other one that probably sowed seeds I mentioned a second ago is the Holy Spirit. Long before Jesus set foot in Samaria, he's been convicting this woman, making her realize she needs a savior. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Okay, all of you that think, you know, I'd like to witness more with my friends and tell them about Jesus, but I, I don't know all the terms. They might ask me questions I don't know. I'm not a theologian. That's for the pastor and the elders and those, all you geeks that like all this theology stuff. I'm just a very simple Christian. So is this woman. She's been a Christian about 20 minutes when she's telling everybody, right? She doesn't care that she doesn't know all the answers. What does she have? A testimony. May I say, so do you, right? The thing about testimony is, if I say, um, 
I had this experience at that restaurant. You can't say, no, you didn't. You might say, well, I had a different experience. Okay, but I did have this experience at that restaurant. I did. I'm telling you the truth. She has that, and so do each of us. Tell people, this is how I used to be. This is how God is changing me. I'm not sinless by any means, but Jesus has changed me from the inside out. Suddenly, this book has come alive for me in a way I never would have dreamed it could. It's a supernatural book. It's Everything's changing for me. My priorities have all changed. You tell that to somebody, they can't say, no, that's not true. No, it is. This is the one that I hate. Don't you hate this one? Yeah, well, that if that works for you, good for you. No, it'll work for you too. That's what the woman is basically saying to these people. Come and see. It's not up to you to make a saint. It's up to you to spread the seeds. Let God bring the increase where he wants to. Um, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So verse 40, when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Why are you bringing that up as a big deal, Joe? Go through the Gospels. Capernaum, Jerusalem, everywhere he is, people never ask him to stay. Samaritans, Gentiles, pagans, please stay with us. They're drinking it in because they too are what? Thirsty. The truth is, folks, every person you see that's not a believer is thirsty. They may not even know they're thirsty, but they're thirsty, right? How can Jesus be the one to quench this woman's thirst with living water? By the way, he said it would well up into a spring. Do you see the spring? It's spouting out of her everywhere. It sounds worse than I meant it. That she can't help but spray everybody with the gospel and, and douse them so they want more. I'm thirsty, give me more. How can Jesus... See, I'm ADD, but I'm coming back to my thought now. How can Jesus quench the thirst of this woman and, and everyone who believes? And the answer is because of the cross. Listen, on the cross, there are seven sayings that Jesus says, right? One of which is two words. Do you remember? I thirst. Do you remember that? The guy that is the ultimate source of living water is now on the cross, bearing all the sin and all the guilt of the entire world to the point where he's now thirsty. All the time when he refers to, his, to God, he calls him Father, except at that moment when he says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is now the outsider with God, thirsty so that we can drink from him and become insiders with God. What do you mean insiders? Sons and daughters. We address him as father, right? Such a beautiful thing. He thirsts so that we can be, our thirst can be quenched forever. I told you last week that, and most of you, I bet, had this, had this, same, this same experience, which is um, when I finally truly came to Jesus Christ, I never, ever have said since then, 1979, ever, once, maybe I really need to look again at Hinduism or Buddhism or the New Age movement. Or, I'm not thirsty spiritually, not even a little. 
as a matter of fact, if I'm thirsty at all, it's I, I can't get enough of this book, almost to the point that it's a little crazy at times. Um, my son-in-law told me that he asked for and got for Father's Day a waterproof Bluetooth speaker, okay? Because he said, I take a shower for 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes I can be listening to scripture or a sermon. And I laughed because I've had a speaker in my shower for years. I know that's weird to some of you. I don't care. I want to use the time that I have. Okay. Where were we? Um, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days, probably teaching them just right? For hours and hours, and they're drinking it in. More are coming to Christ. I'm sure others are coming to Christ, and they're going back to the town going, go get Harry and Louise and tell them to come out here right away. We found the Messiah. Now, this is beautiful. Jesus plants seeds with the woman who believes and goes and plants seeds with her town, right? And the people come back, and they believe, verse 41, and because of his words, Many more became believers. Ultimately, people, if you tell them about Christ and they become a believer, you can't put a notch on your belt because eventually, sooner or later, they're going to read the Bible and Jesus is going to speak to them the way he does to you and me. And then they'll believe because of his word, not because of your testimony alone. Are you with me so far? That's what's going on here. They believe because what the woman said, they came and checked it out. Verse 41, and because of his words, many more became believers. We have his word, right? They said to the woman, we no longer believe, verse 42, just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man is really the savior of the Jews. Wrong. Of the world. It's astounding that Samaritans felt the same way about Jews. We don't mix with them. We hate them. They hate us. We're racist against them and vice versa. Get lost. They don't care. All those barriers are broken down. The man-woman barrier, the I'm a holy man, you're a sinner barrier, down. The um, whole racial thing, completely down. An amazing story. If you're going to pick somebody to be your liaison to a town, would you pick an adulterous woman that everybody thinks is shameful and that wants to have nothing to do with? What's the lesson here? Do not discount, listen, anyone. Oh, don't, don't even bother witnessing to him or her. Believe me, they, you never know. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes it's true that the most thirsty person becomes a believer the fastest. She's thirstier than most, right? The harder nut to crack is often the guy or gal that's got it all together. I got a good job. I got plenty of money. I got a nice spouse. We got a nice family, 2.4 children, you know, the whole average thing, white picket fence. Um, I'm not a perfect person, but I don't really need Jesus. That's a hard nut to crack. But why alcoholics, drug addicts, sex addicts, criminals in prison, the prison ministries are, are doing amazing things because those people are thirsty. They know when they steer the wheel of their own life, they keep crashing. Maybe it's time to Jesus take the wheel, right? You ever heard that song? Um, let me sing it for you now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, um, do we realize 
how short the time is? What are you saying? You're making a prophecy? No, no, no. I don't know. Jesus might come back in 800 years. How about that? Might be sooner. Might be really soon. But regardless, none of you, including me, know how long we're going to live, do we? Do you know how short the time is? Or let me put it this way. None of us know that the guy we're sitting next to that we think, should I witness to that guy at work when I sit next to? He might be off this planet in no time. Listen to Ephesians chapter five. Therefore, be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, taking advantage of every opportunity because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise, understanding what the will of the Lord is. Colossians 4, conduct yourselves with wisdom, listen, towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunities. May we as Christians recognize the divine interruptions, maybe not at a well, but maybe at a supermarket in line behind you. You never know who you're going to meet right? There's a person here uh, at this church right here tonight who was here, went out to their car, and there was a guy driving around in the parking lot. And he talked to the guy, and the guy said, my wife just kicked me out and, you know, basically lost. And this person witnessed to this guy, and I haven't heard the update yet. I'll get it from him later, but I think he was going to come to church, and who knows? Um, maybe get baptized in a swimming pool or something, right? Um, anyway, let's move on, shall we? I'm still looking at notes, though. Oh, Amos 9.13, real quickly. Um, John Piper makes a big deal out of this in this passage. Is a verse in the Old Testament that says that he's talking about in the future, when the kingdom of God comes, there will be a day when the plowman, which is the sower, overtakes the reaper. In other words, no more four months till the harvest. You never know. Throw the seeds out there. Let God do his work. He may have been preparing somebody's heart and mind. Uh, then we got that one. I'm just reading so many notes here. Yeah, we talked about that. Mm -hmm. All right. Verse 43. Is that right? Oh, I'm, I've got so many more notes here. I'm still reading. Give me one second, if you don't mind. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, yeah, I love the fact that the woman suddenly comes to the realization that she can't hide. That Jesus sees right through her, knows all about her, and yet loves her anyway. We all hide our other side, don't we? How you doing? Fine. Got that Christian smile. Fine. God bless you. Everybody's got stuff going on. Every single person in here, listen, is injured, scarred in some way. We all are. We're all so imperfect. Aren't you glad that you can fool me and her and him? You can't fool God. And despite that, he loves us anyway. It's mind-blowing. Sam, I mean, uh, Bill, what were you going to say? Well, I was just hoping uh, you'd comment, uh, going back to Psalm 3, with Nicodemus, and uh, just the fact that Jesus says, this is the verse. And it seems to me like Nicodemus is an example of darkness, and she's an example of light. Absolutely. He's saying Nicodemus, compare the two. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. He's saying Nicodemus is the religious leader, and you're absolutely right. I have that in my notes following that he's, no, you're, you're, <laughs> you're absolutely right, Bill, that he is 
an example of the hard hearts of Jew- Jews that are so into their rituals that they can't see what this Samaritan woman can see. He is Nicodemus in darkness. I, I said last week, I believe he ends up becoming a believer later on because he's one of the ones that anoints the body of Christ and what have you. Um, but there, there's a, a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Let's talk about um, the two stories. Um, Nicodemus is a man. She's a woman. That's obvious. He's a Jew and an insider. He's a, she's a Samaritan uh, and an outsider, right? He is so knowledgeable about the Bible and probably living a very holy life, and he doesn't get through to Nicodemus for some time. This woman is an absolute sinner, the last person you don't even... Don't even bother with the well lady. She goes at noon because she is, whoa, you never know. Don't discount anyone. Um, it's been a while since I've told this story. There was a, a guy uh, in the sixth grade. My friend and I went to our elementary school on a Saturday or Sunday. I think it was a Saturday. And we were just playing, the two of us. And there was a kid there. Let's see, we're sixth grade. You're like 12. There was a kid there that was like 16. And he bullied us really badly, okay, and scared us bigger. You know, that's not that much difference, but four years now, right? Who cares? You're four years older than me. What do you do? From 12 to 16 is like, wow. And he was really mean to us and bullied us. He scared us. Um, and his name was Mike Sharon, okay? And later I was in high school and I heard Mike Sharon became a hell's angel and was a major criminal and did all this stuff. And then I heard he became a pastor. You never know. Anyway, we all have our story, don't we? Um, But yeah, this woman is an amazing, amazing. uh, The story of the woman at the well is absolutely amazing. Um, Let's see. After two days, verse 43, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had all seen, I'm sorry, they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover Passover festival, for they had been there. Okay, At, at a cursory reading of this passage, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I'll show you why. After two days... There in Samaria, he keeps going onward to Galilee. Galilee, remember, is the hick country, okay, out in the country, not big city country. You know, if it was America, Galileans would talk like this here, right? Okay, hick country. So he's going to go, he's going to Galilee. He himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is his own country. So if a prophet has no honor there, why go there? Right? That's kind of like the, why bring that up now? He's proving a point. I'll show you what it is. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, see there, or uh, New American Standard has received him. What well, sounds like, well, Jesus was wrong. A prophet has no honor. And um, they received him. They welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they'd also been there. What does that mean? Well, he cleansed the temple, but while he was there, he was doing all kinds of miracles, signs. The things about the thing about signs are signs 
point to something else. If you see Jesus heal the eyes of a blind man, it doesn't just mean he's a healer. He's a showman. He's a miracle worker. Yeah, that's all, not the showman, but the miracle worker part is true. But the sign he's trying to show you is always spiritual, that we are blind spiritually, and he gives us sight, the ability to see what we couldn't see before, like the woman at the well, not only her own sin inwardly, but who he is and who God is outwardly. You with me so far? I'm going to show you that in Galilee, they're into the David Copperfield show. Do another miracle. Do another sign. It's what I'm going to call sign faith. Okay? My faith is only as good as the last miracle I saw. So come on, do another one, Jesus. Um, they received him. I'll show you why. Verse 46. Once more, he visited Cana. This is water into wine town in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum, somewhere between 16 and 20 miles away. In a car, be there 20 minutes. On foot, day and a half, right? And not stopping much, maybe two days. Pretty far away. Um, a royal official. By the title, we know that this guy is a person that works for and closely with a royal, a king. The only guy this can be in that area is Herod, who's evil, okay? But this guy is wealthy, powerful insider. He comes to Jesus. He has traveled that 16, 18 miles, 20 miles to find Jesus because his kid is dying. Okay. The woman at the well did not have an urgent request. He initiated the conversation. This guy initiates the conversation, he being Jesus. This guy initiates the conversation with Jesus because he's got an urgent need. My kid is dying. Come now. Watch. And watch the response, which sounds cruel, but Jesus nails it, of course. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him. The word in Greek is repeatedly begged, 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 begged to the point of being an annoyance. Repeatedly begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. You got the picture? It's urgent, urgent need. Please, please come and heal my son displaying a good amount of faith. Wouldn't you agree? I believe that you can travel the distance with me and heal my boy. That's pretty good. Unless you people, verse 48, see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The you is plural there. You people. The people word is not there. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It's really you people, you all, right? Southern, I told you they talk like that over there. You will never believe unless you see signs and wonders. Pause. How many signs and wonders did the Samaritan woman see? Well, he told her everything about her life, but there was no hocus pocus, no healing, no raising from the dead, walking on the water. How many signs and wonders did the Samaritan village, when they came up, when they heard his what? words. There's no mention of we saw his miracles. He's the guy. Sign faith is never as strong as uh, word faith. 
where you believe what the word says, regardless. I'm running out of time, so I'm hurrying here. Unless you people, verse 48, see signs and wonders, you all will never believe. Look at the royal official. How distracted is he from by that? Not at all. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Right? The royal official. Remember what was the subject with one of the subjects with the woman at the well? Worship location. Remember, is it this temple or that temple? This city or that city? Jesus says, it doesn't matter what city. We have another location subject. Jesus, I believe that if you come physically with me 18 miles to my house, you can do it. Now, you all know, right, don't you? He can do it from where he's standing. He's got wireless, right? He's got Wi-Fi all over. Um, so, verse 50, Jesus is going to greatly test this dude's faith. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. That's it. Aren't you going to like say any incantation, raise your hands, holy water, something, ask for a donation, 1-800-SICK-KID, nothing. Go, your son will live. Huge faith for that man to just turn around and go, okay, I'm going to walk home now. Long walk, right? We couldn't do it in one day. It has to be the next day. We learn later that it's 1 p.m. when this happens. Verse 50 continues, the man took Jesus at his word. You ever doubt somebody and they go, no, 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 you have my word. Do you know that you have his word on it? And he's asking you to do things by faith, without seeing, without miracles, without a big show. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, verse 51, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. That ah, could be a coincidence, though. Verse 52, when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him yesterday at the seventh hour, counting Roman time, 6, 6 a.m. time starts, seven hours later, 1 p.m., one in the afternoon. At one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The way the Greek is constructed, it's like this. Boom. Thermometer, 106. Check it again. Thermometer, 98.6. Boom. Not over a period of nine weeks with therapy, he was able to speak again. And instant healing at the exact hour Jesus said, go, your son lives. Mind-blowing. So he and his whole household believed. John's key word. They believed. Sign, yes, but long distance healing. There are others in the other gospels. We'll talk more about this next week because we're just about out of time. Um, if you have questions, do uh, email me. Most of you have my email. If I don't have your email, please come up and see me after class and I'll get your email. And um, we're going to pray in a second. And we'll pick it up next week, same bat channel and same time. Thank you all for being here. And those of you on Zoom too, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we, we are just blown away by this portion of scripture, God. And thank you for those divine appointments, like you with the woman at the well, with the Lord Jesus and the woman at the well. We pray that you'd help us to recognize when those happen and to 
act on it and boldly give our testimony. Tell them what we know. Help us to recognize those moments and use them. Help us to learn to worship you in spirit and in truth, recognizing all that you are and all that we owe you and in submission, call you father and bow to you and also praise you and thank you. Help us to remember that our true food, the thing that will satisfy us the most is doing what you want us to do, God. The most satisfying thing on the earth, satisfying thing on the earth. Lastly, the harvest. May we see the people around us as ripe for harvest because indeed you may be drawing them to yourself and using us to spread the word, God. Give us that contagious faith, faith like the woman at the well had to just put the seed out there. Help us not to make distinctions about who will believe and who won't, but to just spread seed according to your word. Thank you for this time, God. We love you. We bow to you. Our very spirits, our very wills, our lives are yours. We pray these things in Christ's name with thanksgiving. Amen. Thanks for being here, everyone on Zoom and everyone here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know if you're here. Those of you on Zoom, we'll see you next week. I'm going to turn my screen off. God bless you.